Hi, welcome to episode 622 of the Fantastic Forecast. And as I once said on January 24th, 2011, I'm the host, Dave Elliott, Master of Kung Fu, Karate, Jiu-Jitsu, and Koshu. In every episode of the Fantastic Forecast, I'll be talking about a different issue of the Fantastic Four, starting with issue one and going all the way to issue 645. Today it's Fantastic Four, volume five, number five, from August 2014, The Fall of the Fantastic Four, Part 5, by writer James Robinson and artist Leonard Kirk, with guest artist for some of the flashback scenes in this issue, including Chris Somney, Dean Haspiel, Paul Ravocci, Phil Jimenez, Mike Allred, Jim Starlin, man, that would be great if he could write and draw the FF, Jerry Ordway, Durless Santa Cruz, and June Brigman. And so the issue begins in New York City with an editorial from the Daily Bugle, written by Betty Brandt. She writes about the history of superhero trials, including the Hulk, Daredevil, uh, well, that's pretty much it. Not, not, not much of a history. Funny, if I recall, Daredevil was a character in a TV movie called The Trial of the Incredible Hulk. But this trial is bigger than them all, and she mentions that this started as a class action suit, and we see inside the courtroom, and the members of the Fantastic Four are there, wearing their ugly-ass FF uniforms. Can't they even dress in real clothes for a friggin' courtroom appearance? Betty mentions that uh, the prosecutor, his name is Aiden Tolliver, and it's like their whole history is being put on trial. Hence the flashbacks mentioned earlier. You know, did James Robinson watch the final episode of Seinfeld and think to himself, huh, let's do that. As their lawyer, the FF have hired Jennifer Walters, you know, the She-Hulk. What, they couldn't afford Matt Murdock? Tolliver has Reed on the stand, and he asks what Reed was really hoping to achieve when he first started the Fantastic Four. You know, when he first fired that flare back in issue one. He even, the, the prosecutor, even mentions that moment when Sue turned invisible and started pushing people around back then. Completely unnecessary. It's like I said back in the first episode on November 10th, 2010. The first person to see the flare is Sue Storm. She's busy having tea with one of her society friends. Without saying a word to her so-called friend, Sue turns invisible and runs away. Her friend is left scratching her head and wondering where Sue went. Now that is a thoughtless bitch. It's no wonder why we never see that friend again. Yeah, mofos, I'm totally gonna roll with this clip show concept. So Tolliver mentions Ben scaring people and causing thousands of dollars in property damage and how Johnny destroyed two fighter planes. Later, Ben is on the stand and Tolliver asks him about his first battle with the Hulk. Ben's battle, not Tolliver's. And how it was scary, it frightened people, and caused millions of dollars in property damage. Actually, it was a fight in a small town out west. No one was traumatized, and it did very little damage, except for one wood building that the Hulk dumped on Ben's head. Here I am from episode 12. November 22nd, 
2010. Back above ground, the Hulk picks up a three-story building, the Barker House, and tosses tosses it on top of the thing. Okay, so that wasn't the best clip. Don't blame me. I'm not picking the clips. James Robinson is. Later, the prosecutor hits below the belt by asking Sue about her infatuation with Namer, the Submariner, prompting the She-Hulk to smash her table while objecting. I'm pretty sure that destroying furniture in the courtroom is frowned upon uh, by the judge and everyone else involved. Sue says that she and Namer were not romantically involved, but they had a mutual regard for one another. <laughs> Last time I had a mutual regard for someone, he got tossed out of the dressing room at JCPenney. The prosecutor mentions the time that Submariner attacked New York City back in Annual 1, which I discussed back on December 12th, 2010. Back in the water, in Namer's ship, Sue, Dorma, and Krang are watching the action above through a periscope. Sue expresses concern that somebody could be hurt. Krang notes that she sounds just as concerned about Namer as she does about her own team members. Sue says, That's right. I'm worried about Namer. He's not a bad guy. Krang puts two and two together and figures out that Sue Storm isn't just a random prisoner. There must be something between her and Namer. With this, Lady Dorma gets pissed. You bitch! You're not coming between me and my man! A catfight almost breaks out, but ne Krang breaks it up. Damn Krang. Dorma smashes the window, letting water flow in, hoping to drown Sue. Tolliver goes on to mention that Namer was never brought to account for his actions back then. Only back in John Burns Namer, the Submariner number 13, he did. They put Namer on trial, where he was defended by Reed and a bunch of other heroes. It's kind of dangerous for James Robinson to be doing this flashback story, when already by page 5, his knowledge of FF history seems pretty spotty. Later, Johnny is on the stand, and Tolliver asks about his relationship with Crystal. Johnny's, not Tolliver's. And Johnny says that he always had the deepest regard for her. Deepest regard? He was friggin' obsessed with her. He was literally stalking her like a psycho at one point. Tolliver goes on to mention that some of these early encounters with the Inhumans didn't go very well. And that started with Medusa back in FF36. Here I am on January 27th, 2011. After turning invisible, Sue sneaks up on Pastebot Pete and takes his glue gun away. And before Medusa can attack, Sue zaps her hair with Pastebot Pete's paste gun. If you think it's hard to get bubblegum out of your hair, try getting Pastebot Pete's paste gun paste out of your hair. Medusa's going to have to use some inhumanly strong shampoo to clean up that mess. Later, Reed is back on the stand and Tolliver mentions Dr. Doom. Reed says they can't possibly blame them for Doctor Doom, which is of course, I'm sure if you look over their history you probably could, they bring up the fact that they have allowed Valeria to move in with Doctor Doom. Something I mentioned back in that classic episode from October 2nd, 2017. This leads into a flashback before Volume 5 begins, where Sue walks into Valeria's room and finds a note left on Valeria's iPad, which is a very strange way to leave a note. I mean, how long has that tablet been just sitting there with the power on, waiting for Sue to find it? I mean, if you just leave it on like that, isn't it going to shut down eventually? So, 
The note says that Valeria is leaving for Latveria to stay with Dr. Doom. She's tired of her dad's lies and secrets and how her mother is compliant in all these lies and secrets. And she also adds that she might be a good influence on Dr. Doom and help him change for the better. Yeah, good luck with that, you brat. So Reed defends the decision, saying that Valeria can take care of herself. Surprisingly, the prosecutor doesn't mention the fact to the court that Valeria is like four or five years old. So they take a break for lunch, and Betty Brandt's editorial mentions that they only scratched the surface of the FF's past. If you ask me, they scratched enough. Do you have any idea what a pain in the ass it is to go back and insert these old clips? So later, Reed is back on the stand, and Tolliver brings up Galactus. Figure, Ben says. Yeah, Reed really does belong in jail for this. I mean, first of all, saving Galactus's life? That was pretty horrible. Let's see how Reed talks his way out of this. He mentions Galactus appearing over New York City, and the appearance of the Silver Surfer, and here I am from March 1st, 2011. Galactus, meanwhile, is putting the finishing touches on his energy converter. He tries to turn it on, and bloink, it doesn't work. Well, that's never happened before, he says. Why? 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 What a drama queen. He looks up and sees the, the thing ripping the shit out of the top of the machine. I'm no mechanic, Galactus, but there's your problem right there. So eventually, Reed says they stopped Galactus with the ultimate nullifier. Reed has to describe what the ultimate nullifier is, which is, it's a weapon that can destroy the entire universe. Where is it? The prosecutor asks. Reed says he was keeping it in the Baxter building, but he lost it. The fact that Reed once saved Galactus's life doesn't get brought up, surprisingly. Tolliver brings up that gateway to the negative zone, a very dangerous place, right there in the Baxter building. It's the home of Blastar and Annihilus, who first appeared in FF Annual 6, discussed on May 21st, 2011. Meanwhile, in the negative zone, a race of pink, pointy-eared people are being attacked by a strange villain firing laser blasts from a spaceship. He's annihilating everything he sees. His name, appropriately, is Annihilus. His parents really knocked it out of the park when they picked that name. The ship flies away, leaving only, only carnage and death. The hatch opens, and the green and purple metallic bug-like Annihilus sticks his head out and declares, Once more, I am triumphant. Once more, I have proven that in all the universe, Annihilus stands supreme. Once more, he has proven that in all the universe, full of massive gaping assholes, he's the most massive, most gaping asshole of them all. Next, the prosecutor asks Sue about the time she was controlled by the hate monger and became malice. Discussed in episode 281 from August 11th, 2013. The human torch arrives, but Malice puts up a force field around Johnny, and all the oxygen starts to get used up fast, and he flames off and he starts to fall. But just in time, Daredevil comes swinging by and saves him. He asks Johnny, What's the story on the amorphous glob you're fighting? Johnny knows that amorphous means shapeless, and if there's one way to describe that bitch Malice, she is not shapeless. Reed asks Daredevil why he thinks Malice is a shapeless blob, and seems to know that Daredevil doesn't use conventional sight. Daredevil explains that he has a radar sense, and to him, Malice looks like a big round blob. Reed realizes, oh, 
Malice is surrounded by an invisible force field. And Johnny's like, Oh my gosh, you don't mean... And Malice jumps in and says, Damn right! She rips off her mask and says it's her, Susan Storm, the invisible girl. She accuses him of giving her no respect. She's still harboring a grudge over the way she was treated in the Lee Kirby years. Next up, there's a guy on the stand giving testimony about his father, who suffers from depression. Well, guess what his father did for a living? He was a taxi driver! And now, he's in terrible shape. He can't work, he barely moves, he sits around all day. That's kind of like me. Shiok asks if this has anything to do with the hate monger incident, and he says no. Turns out his father's taxi was destroyed by The Thing, who was out with a blind girl, Alicia, and people were taking pictures. Ben got mad, I call that Alec Baldwining, and destroyed a taxi. Finally, maybe we'll get some justice for all them terrorized taxi drivers over the years. And I am not going to pull a clip of me talking about Ben destroying taxis because that's like every other issue. So his father never did get paid off since the Fantastic Four have so many lawsuits against them it takes forever to get a settlement. The lawsuits languish for years and years and people don't get paid. I call that Donald Trumping. So Tolliver delivers his closing arguments stating about how many people have suffered because of the Fantastic Four. If Reed really cared about the safety of the city, he says, he wouldn't have all this dangerous stuff in the Baxter building in the middle of the city. And I agree 100% Reed is a menace. We cut to She-Hulk in an outdoor cafe chatting with Betty Brant about the verdict, calling it severe. She-Hulk says that she failed her friends Betty asks what's next. The verdict has an immense ramification for the children of the Future Foundation. Uh-oh, did they take away the kids? Well, we see Sue coming out of the courtroom and Alec Baldwining as she lashes out on the photographers with her powers. And she then she grabs onto Reed and she's crying. And then we have a huge shift to what feels like a backup story, even though it's not labeled as such. We see Doctor Doom fighting with Count Nefaria who, as you can imagine, is very nefarious, Doom absorbs the powers of Nefaria and subdues him. As he drains him of all his powers, Count Nefaria turns into an old man. Turns out that Nefaria was ruling over some region of Europe, and then the local police come by and they say to Dr. Doom, they have nothing to give him. Doom looks at Valeria and says that he's trying something new. Valeria next says that they should go, uh, look into some famine areas of Somalia and do something. Doom senses that something is amiss with Valeria and he asks what it is and she says that she misses her brother Franklin. Well, I bet he doesn't miss her. Who would? Next, we see a ship landing at Shield Base 4201, formerly known as Camp Hammond, they say. The ship lands, the door opens, and out comes Franklin and the rest of the Future Foundation kids. I was under the impression that Alex Powers was like 18, so I don't know why he got dragged along with the rest of the kids. Leech sees the armed shield guards and is like, they have guns! Why do they have guns? You know, I ask myself all the time, why does anyone have guns? Watching on a monitor is some other shield agents, 
and there's one guy in charge, but we can't see who it is. He says that the guards should not have guns. The kids are harmless. Bentley sees a statue of Jim Hammond and asks who that is. So the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents are going to lead the kids to their own laboratory observation rooms. And the guy in charge doesn't care for that idea. And he says, you're planning to put each one of them in their own glorified test tube? At one point, a guard tells Alex that he can go. He's over 18. Well, then why did they bring him there in the first place? Alex says that he wants to stay and look after his friends. Back in the control room, the guy in charge leaves, saying that he's going to deal with this himself. So Alex is about to use his powers to cause a stink when the guy in charge shows up and he introduces himself as Jim Hammond, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., also known as the original Human Torch. He says that the kids are going to be safe and well taken care of, and he speaks highly of Alex and his bravery. And then Alex says to the kids that he thinks they're going to be okay. Well, the original Human Torch always kind of shows up when you least expect it. And oddly enough, not very many appearances in the pages of the Fantastic Four, despite his importance in FF history. And with that, I've got 13 more issues to go. If you have any questions about the Fantastic Four, about this podcast, or if you need relationship advice, you can email me at podcastff at gmail.com. You can download other episodes of iTunes or find them all at www.podcastff.podbean.com. And as I first said on June 23rd, 2013, so long, kids. I'll talk to you next time. This podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs>